This event was recorded live at the 2010 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Well, uh, good afternoon everyone and a very warm welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. The sun is shining. Um, my name is Prue Rowlandson and I have the enormous pleasure of a privilege and pleasure to introduce you all to two absolutely remarkably wonderfully fine writers. So before I do that, I'm just going to explain how we're going to do the next hour. I will give the two authors very short introductions, and then they will both read from their new novels. Um, and then we will have a conversation up here, and then you will all ask lots of questions. And, and then when we come to an end, if you don't mind staying seated while we leave and head over to the big bookshop signing tent <coughs> over there, where both authors will be available, to answer any more questions and to sign copies of the book, which you must buy because they are brilliant. Um, also, last thing is to make sure that you have your telephones turned off because it will be really embarrassing for you if it goes off while one of the authors is reading. Okay. So, the two writers. On my immediate left is Emma Donoghue. She is a writer, an Irish writer, born in Ireland, but now lives in Canada with her partner and two children. Um, she is here to talk about Room, which is her seventh novel. Um, it has had quite a lot of attention recently, so you may well know that it is narrated entirely uh, by Jack, and we meet him on his fifth birthday. And he has spent his entire life in uh, a room 12 foot square. And, uh, and we will hear more about that in a second. On my far left is Fiona Shaw. Um, she will, she is, uh, lives in York with her partner and her two children. Um, and this is uh, Tell It to the Bees, is her third novel. And she's also written um, a non-fiction book called Out of Me. Um, this is a, another outstanding novel set in the confines of a 1950s village in England uh, and we follow Charlie as um, his, his home life disintegrates and, uh, and the people of the town get very um, uh, opinionated about how his family life is, is turning out. Um, so Fiona, you're going to read first. Thank you. Thank you everybody for being here. Um, I'm going to read two um, two extracts from Tell It to the Bees, uh, both of them with Charlie at the centre because the title of this session, which I can't quite remember, is something to do, is to do with chi children and trauma and love, of course. Um, so I just introduced the, the first of them. The first of them is a very short um, piece about Charlie going to visit one of my two main female characters, a doctor, for the first time. Um, the, the, he's, he's, met her in the doctor's surgery when he's hurt himself and they've discovered, he's, she's discovered that he's fascinated by watching things and he's quite a lonely boy and he's also an observer of the world from the outside and she invites him to come and see her beehives, she keeps beehives. Uh, so he goes to see her beehives. Uh, he's about 10 years old, uh, he comes, he lives on a terrace, uh, he's a working class boy, his mother works in a wireless factory so the doctor's world is quite, diff quite other, quite, an, an, quite a different world from the world that he knows. And he's nervous, but he's also very excited. The doctor's house was huge, big as a ship, big as a castle, all on its own with its own hedge around and a driveway with gravel that wouldn't last a minute if it was on his street. Butterflies kicked up a storm in Charlie's stomach. What if she didn't remember him? What if she didn't really mean it? He nearly turned around and went, except that a big lady saw him and marched at him like a tank, and so he froze instead of running. She wore a thin coat like Auntie Pan did, over the top of everything else, so he could see her dress peeping out of the top and from underneath. You could get an electric shock off Auntie Pan's, and when she stood under the electric light, the coat shone like plastic. This lady's had a pattern on it that looked like tongues in blue and red that swirled and flipped about in the wind. It's not anyone that's ill, he said. It's about the bees. She said I could see the bees. And Mrs. Sandringham got him by the collar and took him round the side of the house and shouted for the doctor. 
She was wearing an old, old trousers and a pullover with holes, and she had a scarf around her head. When she got nearer, he saw she was smiling. Charlie Weeks, I'm glad you're here, she said. Come and see what's going on. The bees had things to fear in the winter. Mice, which crept in at the door and ate their sweet food. Woodpeckers that could shred the hive to splinters. Canny blue tits that came tap-tapping at the entrance to snap up any curious bees. Dr. Markham told Charlie how the warm February sun could lure them from the hive with a promise like the ice queen and then freeze them to death. How they could lose their way home in the snow, bewildered by its brightness. He watched her heft each hive to know its weight, and she told him how careful you must be when it was still wintry, not to disturb the bees or they might kill their queen, though she didn't know why. She gave him a notebook with a red cover and a leather loop to hold the slender pencil. Might be useful, she said. He wrote down that a slice of onion was good for bee stings. He wrote down that bee stings were good for arthritis. He wrote down that honey was heavier than water. He wrote down that you could talk to the bees and tell them about important things, but you must do it quietly, else they might fly away. Before he left that day, Charlie ran back to where the hives stood. The doctor hadn't told him how he should speak, and he wasn't sure how near to be or what he should say. So in the end, he stood at one side and put his head close as if listening at a door. And covering his mouth with his hand, he told the bees he would be back next weekend and that he was very glad now about the fight at school. And then, very quietly, he told, him, he told them that his mum was sad, but he didn't know why. So Charlie, Charlie meets, the, meets the doctor, Jean, and, and a friendship forms between them. Um, and I was very, I mean, the, 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 the genesis of the novel was I wanted to write about a love affair between two women. I think it's no problem in giving that away. Um, but I wanted, in a sense, the first, the instigator of the friendship between the two women to be the boy, the, the, the son of one of them. So he's a catalyst, actually, on both for the two women to meet, and he's also, much later in the novel, in an, both an unconsciously deliberate and an inadvertent way, he's the catalyst for what, for, for what explodes at the end of the novel, the kind of what, the, 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 um, what nearly unravels, what nearly, what nearly destroys everything. Uh, so he, he, so the friendship forms between the boy and the woman, and then uh, later the two women meet. Um, but the other thing I was writing about really was the end of a end of a marriage. And uh, for Charlie, I think that tr his trauma is as much more to do with the breakup of his parents' marriage than it is to do with his mother's new relationship. Um, and the difficulty for all that his father actually is a bit of a, a bit of a hard case. Um, for Charlie longs for his father's approval, of course. So the second piece I'd like to read is uh, much later in the novel, um, and I think, it's I think probably everything is fairly clear if I just read the episode. Um, Charlie's been out at school, then he's gone to play with his friend, and now he's on his way home. Going home that evening, he saw his dad the first time in weeks. He was running not to be late and flicking over the day in his head, picking out the things to tell his mum when she asked, picking out the things not to tell her. She'd started asking him again, as if she'd started noticing he was there again, and sometimes it was a bit much. Sometimes it felt as if he couldn't get his breath. He only saw his dad when he was nearly past him. His dad, cigarette in his fingers, head turning to the left and then to the right like he always did, his walk like it always was, as if he was one part cowboy wearing those leather trousers. All these things his dad did that Charlie had never noticed before, but that he knew him by in the flash of the second that he saw him. Just as Charlie knew him by the scar on his finger where the dog had bitten him when he was a boy, or by the, by the way he set off singing in the bath. Here he was, walking down the street like he had the right to be here, walking down the street smiling, with a woman on his arm that was not Charlie's mother. All this Charlie saw and understood in the time it took him to run by. All this Charlie saw, and his father saw nothing. Then he was round the corner and past the pub, which was probably where his dad was heading, running, banging his feet at the pavement, not looking, not caring, only wanting to be gone and free, till suddenly he stopped dead and stood, looking straight out at everything. Front doors, neck curtains, the moon, a dog, and nothing at all. He sniffed the air. He could still smell his father, the cigarettes and hair cream, and the woman's perfume, 
and all the mixed-up smells made him sad, made him furious. Across the street, a lady stared at him, and he stared right back, stuck his tongue out, and then he was running again. The air was damp with cooking vegetables when he got in. Lydia had the wireless on, but she must have been listening for him because he barely climbed the stairs when she was there, calling up, her voice chirpy as if everything was all right now. Hello, what have you been up to? Did you eat your sandwich? I saw a hedgehog on the way to work, snuffling it was. I said to it, you're out late, dear. Wish you'd seen it. Charlie buried his face in the pillow. His cheeks were burning and his head pounded. His mother went on talking up the stairs. I've got a nice dinner cooking. Come and read a page of my book to me while I finish off. When Charlie went down, she had the book propped open under the two pound weight, like usual, and she was washing up, humming something. What sort of story is it, Charlie said. Lydia turned at his voice. She scrutinized his face and put down the wet brush. What's happened, she said. He picked up the book, but the writing blurred before him. Charlie? Lydia's voice was measured but insistent. What happened? Just played. Who with? Bobby. Did you finish the den? He nodded. Bobby's bringing his dad to see it. Ah, Lydia said. She paused, then asked, anything else happen? He held the book and stared at the days of small black letters. Charlie, she said again softly, and he looked up at her. Did you meet anyone else, Lydia said, and he looked at her eyes to see if she knew. Then he slammed the book to the ground. There was a moment between them before he yelled, your books are stupid, and he ran from the room. Later, Lydia came up to find him. She sat on his bed and stroked his hair. Will you let me see your den, she said. Don't know. The feel of her hand stroking his head was good, and he shut his eyes again. I know I'm not your dad, but you have to crawl and then you have to crouch. In one place, I can nearly stand up, but you couldn't. Are there different bits to it then, different rooms? Suppose so, but you don't have rooms in a den. No, of course not. Lydia thought for a moment. What about you taking me to see your den and then me taking you to Fontini's for ice cream? Why? Why not? We're not getting much in the way of holiday, what with me working all the time. Will you wear perfume, like you do going out with Dad? Lydia looked at him, puzzled. If you want me to, yes. And paint your nails? Charlie, Lydia said. He didn't say anything. Charlie, she said again, and he shrugged. And then in a throwaway kind of voice, maybe Dad would come back if, if what? He wouldn't look at her now. If I painted my nails again and wore perfume, she said. She rubbed her hands across her face, though, to clear her mind. Have you seen him today, she said, and after a pause, Charlie nodded. And perhaps he wasn't on his own. Charlie didn't move. Was he with another lady? You don't know any of the things that I do, he said. such a wonderful line you don't know any of the things I do and it's true even if um, a boy and his mother are in the same room for five years they're still perceiving everything differently and um, this is a piece from chapter one of room after dinner something amazing we make a birthday cake I bet it's gonna be delicioso with candles the same number as me five and on fire like I've never seen for real I'm the best egg blower I make the goose spill out non-stop. I have to blow three for this birthday cake. I use the pin from the impression, the impression sunrise postcard because I think the crazy horse would get mad if I took down Guernica, even though I always put the pin back right after. Ma thinks Guernica is the best masterpiece of our three because it's the realest, but actually it's all mixed up. The horse is screaming with loads of teeth because there's a spear stabbed in him, plus a bull and a woman holding a floppy kid with his head upside down and a lamp like an eye. And the worst bit in the picture is the big bulgy foot in the corner. I always think it's going to stamp on me. I get to lick the spoon of the cake and then Ma puts the cake into stove's hot tummy. I try juggling with the eggshells all up at the same time. Ma catches one. Little jacks with faces, she says. Nah, I say. Will we maybe make them a nest of flour dough, she says. If we defrost those beets tomorrow, we could use the juice to make it purple. I shake my head. I say, let's add them to egg snake. Egg snake is more longer than all around room because we've been making him since I was three. He lives in underbed, all coiled up, keeping us safe. 
Most of his eggs are brown, but sometimes there's a white. Some have patterns on from pencils or crayons or pen, or bits stuck on with flower glue, a foil crown, and one has a yellow ribbon belt and treads and bits of tissue for hairs. Egg Snake's tongue is a needle. That keeps the red thread going right all the way through him. Ma and me don't bring out Egg Snake much anymore because sometimes he tangles and his eggs get a bit cracked around the holes or even fall off the thread and then we have to use the bits for mosaics. Today, I put his needle in one of the holes of the new eggs. I have to dangle it till it comes out the other hole all sharp. It's pretty tricky. Now he is three eggs longer. I extra gently wind him up again so all of him fits in underbed. Waiting for my cake to cook takes hours and hours. We breathe in the lovely air. Then when it's cooling, we make stuff called icing, but not cold like ice. It's sugar melted with water. Ma spreads it all over the cake. Now, she says, you can put on the chocolates while I'm washing up. But there aren't any chocolates, I remind her. Aha, she says, holding up the little bag and shaking it shickly shick. I saved a few from Sunday treat three weeks ago. You sneaky ma, I say. Where? She zips her mouth shut. What if I need a hiding place another time, she says. Tell me, ma. Ma's not smiling anymore. Shouting hurts my ears, she says. Tell me the hidey place. Jack, I don't like there to be hidey places. What's the big deal, asks ma. Zombies. Ah, she says, or ogres or vampires. So Ma opens cabinet and takes out the box of rice. She points in the dark hole. It was just in with the rice that I hid them, okay? Okay, I say. Nothing scary would fit in the rice box, she says. You can check any time. Anyway, there's five chocolates left in the bag. There's a pink, a blue, a green, and two reds. Some of the color comes off on my fingers when I put them on the cake. I get icing on me and suck every bit. Then it's time for the candles, but there aren't any. You're shouting again, says Ma, covering her ears. But you said a birthday cake, I say. It's not a birthday cake if there's no five candles on fire. She puffs out her breath. I should have explained better, Jack. That's what the five chocolates say. The five chocolates say that you're five. I don't want this cake. I hate it when Ma waits all quiet. Stinky cake. Calm down, Jack, she says. You should have asked for candles for Sunday treat, I tell her. Well, she says, last week we needed painkillers for Sunday treat. I didn't need any painkillers, I shout. Just you for your stupid rotted teeth. Ma looks at me like I have a new face she's never seen. And then she says, anyway, Jack, remember, we have to choose things that old Nick can get easily. But he can get anything, I remind her. Well, yeah, she says, if he went to the trouble, why he went to trouble, I ask. I just mean, says Ma, he might have to go to two or three stores for the thing and that would make him cranky. And what if he didn't find the impossible thing, then we probably wouldn't get Sunday treat at all. But Ma, I say, laughing, old Nick doesn't go in stores. Stores are on TV. She's chewing her lip and then she looks down at the cake. Well, anyway, I'm sorry, Jack, I thought the chocolates would do instead. Silly Ma, I say. Dumbo, she says, and she slaps her head. Numbskull, I say, but not in a nasty way. Next week when I'll be six, you better get candles then. Next year, says Ma, you mean next year when you're six. Her eyes are shut. They always do that sometimes and she doesn't say anything for a minute. When I was small, I thought her battery was used up like happened to watch one time. <laughs> we had to ask for a new battery for him for Sunday treat. Promise about the candles? Promise, she says opening her eyes. Thank you very much. Well, it's absolutely um, amazing uh, that you managed to have written, you've written this whole book narrated by five-year-old Jack and you do such a brilliant job with it. But uh, also Charlie is a narrator in your book and I wondered if you could both talk about um, how you reached their voices, how you managed to get so brilliantly in the heads of two young boys, both of them living in a very different world than the one that you live in. Um, I had one in the house. <laughs> you weren't I had, keeping him in a small room. No, no, I wasn't. And my, my son Finn, um, who was five when I was writing the novel, um, he's not a bit like Jack because he's so corrupted by the modern world, you know, the Starbucks factor, the endless lollipops, you know. Um, but the 
the, the intricacies of his language, which I did study for creating Jack's language. Am I making that noise? Okay. Um, not just for his language, but for the mindset. Um, I, I love the way five-year-old children of any gender, um, they, can, they can have really strong emotions, and then they move on to the next thing. They don't dwell on them. They're very... They're kind of like high-speed Buddhists that way. So um, I found it immensely helpful to draw on my son. Um, for one scene in the book, I literally rolled him up in a carpet. Um, I, I told him the gist of the book. I said, there's this bad guy who owns this woman and boy and keeps them in his shed. And you know, my son accepted that because he's used to the world of fairy tales and Pokemon where these things happen all the time. You just have to find the ring of power. So um, he actually got involved in, you know, he, he um, let me roll him up in the rug to try it out. So um, he was immensely helpful. So that's the quick answer. And Charlie, in 1950s Britain? 1950s Britain, well, I've got two daughters, so I was, I'm, and I grew up with sisters, so I was stumped <laughs> for first-hand boys, as it were. Um, and actually, when I did, once I'd written Charlie, my, my, one of my first readers and then my editor were both boys, or had been boys, and I, was, I did wait with bated breath from there to there, I waited, waited to hear what their responses were as to whether they felt I got the boyness okay. I was quite anxious about that because I'm thoroughly a girl, uh, and was very relieved that I that they they well they didn't they said that they didn't hear any false false girly notes to Charlie. Um, otherwise, I think I, I mean he's my character, Char my Charlie, my boy is definitely drawn in part actually more than either of the two women I think out of the kind of child I was that I was. So a lot of um, his, his fascination with insects comes straight out of my fascination with insects. So I used to love watching ants, was my kind of forte. Yeah. Uh, and the bigger ants, the better. So when we went on holiday to Italy, the very big ants I particularly liked, because they were... Uh, so Charlie, Charlie is, 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 is a character, I think, drawn in mostly out of, very much out of my own, what I remembered of my childhood self. And, and both boys actually have to have quite a specific language. Uh, as we've heard um, from Jack calling bed, bed with a capital B. There's only one bed yeah, in Jack, the world. Jack and is an animist, really. That's his natural religion. He, he turns every object in the room into a character, a, somebody to play with, a friend. I think children have that power to socialize with anything, even if it's only a twig and a stone. Um, so yeah, I made Jack, um, I gave him sort of standard American English, plus the peculiar grammar of five-year-olds. And then I linguistically advanced him a few notches because he's been sitting there talking to his mother for years. Um, and then I also gave him some peculiar traits. Um, he's a little bit obsessive about counting things as well. He has some kind of low-lying anxiety. Um, but um, I suppose I was just trying to come up with a plausible voice through which to tell the story because um, you know, it wasn't just because I happened to have a five-year-old son. I actually thought a child was the perfect voice for this story. I would never have told the story from the point of view of the young woman who, as a student, is captured by a stranger, locked up, raped. That would, you know, it wouldn't interest me as a fictional exercise. But I thought through a child's eye, it could be truly strange. And it could actually be a bit of a almost strange adventure story, a journey from one world into the next, rather than, you know, a sob story. Because to Jack, it's not a, it's not a sad story at all. This is just, yeah. this is his planet. No, and, and it gets quite confusing, the language, when, because it's quite precise. I presume if you are an adult in a room with a small child, you have to be quite precise with language, whereas when they get out of the room, you're, you, you know, it, it's, it's revealed how imprecise we all use language all the time. Um, and for Jack, that's a very confusing thing. Yes, um, I, I absolutely loved the chance in the second half of the book to do a kind of Alice in Wonderland on it, to, to make the outside world strange, because you know, we as readers have got so used to the contained world of room that then having Jack as this kind of wide-eyed point of view, um, you know, sort of social commentator, it was a really enjoyable exercise to, you know, look at our more familiar outside world, but through this child who is comparing everything to his, his strange little home base. I think the, the question of um, what it's like to write as a, as a female writer to write about a small boy or a slightly older boy, I mean, begs the question that endlessly comes up if you talk to anyone writing fiction, which is, unless you're only going to write about your own identity, then you have to make things up the whole time. And it's, and it's kind of a, there's a, it's a kind of chancy act. You do everything you can. I mean, Emma's obviously, you've done a lot, you did a lot of crucial research to get it as right as, as you imagined it might be. And I did the same in a kind of social history kind of a way. Um, but then you have to just go and write it and take the risk that you haven't, you know, and, and then you, you have to wait for the, the reader's feedback to find out whether 
it rings true for them. Um, so, I, it, I mean, in, in a sense, it's, it's just taking, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a more extreme degree of what all writers do, which is to write about things they have absolutely no experience of, no knowledge of before they start. And that's the kind of imaginative journey you have to make. So. But I always wanted Jack to be a boy, no question about it, because I knew that the captured person would most likely be a young woman. They tend to be. So I wanted her child to be a different sex from her so that they would sort of represent the the full range of humanity and so that it would be kind of like Adam and Eve in the garden, you know, um, at the moment where Jack, where Ma starts telling Jack that there is an outside world, she's handing him an apple. I wanted it very much to be a, a fall into knowledge and as Philip Pullman said this morning, that's an enriching fall. You know, you don't want anybody to stay in these little self-contained idyls. You want to be banished from the garden and go out there, you know, tasting of all the fruit. And um, in, again, in both books, as, as we've sort of mentioned, this, this dynamic between mother and child is key for both, for both books. And I wondered if you could talk a little about how you, how you built that up in your books, both of you, because it's, it's how the, uh, both stories move forward, is, is the relationship. Yeah, I suppose my, I mean, like, um, sorry. Uh, I suppose, yeah, my, my character is a little bit of what might be pejoratively turned of a mummy's boy, a bit like Emma's, uh, but like Jack. So Charlie and Jack are both, both have very, Charlie has a very close relationship with his mother. Uh, he's an only child, which is partly why that's happened. And he has a father who wants him to be a different kind of a son. He wants, his father has, it, has in mind a very particular kind of boy. And Charlie can't make himself fit it. He tries and he can't do it. So he's formed a very close relationship with the mother. His mother in in certain kind of key ways. One of the things he lo they love to do, which I which just got mentioned in the second extract, was she's a great reader of detective novels. Uh, she gets them out in wadges from the library and reads her way through them. And they're kind of where she goes to escape. And so she often has him read them out, or he likes to read them out. Even though he doesn't quite understand all the stuff that's in them. He reads them out to her. Um, and she's, I think she's, she's keen for him to forge his own identity but, um, and to be separate from her. But uh, I don't think she depends upon him, but they do have a very close relationship. But in a sense, the more important, almost the more important relationship of the story is the relationship she, she then he then develops with, with the doctor, with Jean, uh, which is a quite separate, at first quite separate from his, from his relationship with his mother. And, and um, is a real relationship between equals. So she's initially it was not a parent to him. And that's both exhilarating to him and quite surprising. And she's also, as a middle-class woman, very unlike anybody he's ever met, too. Uh, so I think that's, Jean is at least, at least as important to Charlie in the story as, as his mother, Lydia, is. I was very uh, conscious that when you're writing a novel about motherhood, you could so easily fall into that trap of you know, reifying this glorious birth bond between a mother and her birth child, you know, as if that's the only form that love takes between an adult and a child. So in both our novels, in a way, the child grows up by beginning to form really crucial bonds with others. Outside, yes. Yeah, and in the outside world, you know, the person Jack clicks with most is his step-grandfather, man he's never met before, no legal relationship, no blood relationship, but they just happen, their, their souls happen to touch in that easy-going way over a game of Lego. So I think, you know, important though motherhood is to me, I hate when, when it becomes this fossilized thing, you know, the woman and her baby, like this closed unit. Um, I'm very interested in, in different forms of family making and, um, and uh, in, in one way Room gave me a chance, even though it's mother and child, it was still a chance to make a very different kind of family which would be seen as abnormal by outsiders but has its own unique romance to it. Yes, uh, abnormal to outsiders is also what happens in, in both books. Both what hap has happened to your characters is seen to be abnormal to everyone else. And uh, I wondered if you could talk a bit about how you, how, I mean, both feel, although they're very sort of foreign to us, they also seem very universal. It seems like an experience that we all um, experience at one time or another in our lives of feeling like you're being misunderstood or criticized from, from the outside world. And, uh, both seem very kind of natural, and I wondered if you could talk a bit about about that, of what you were trying to do with that. Well, I, I, I've written, as I said, a novel about two women who fall in love, and I was, I mean, one of the reasons I did that was because it happened to me, and I had, a, and I have children, so I didn't want, to, I wanted to have one of the women to have been to be a mother, and uh, one of the women to be a mother, but I wanted to set it back in time, at a time when. A, they're not expecting it. It comes 
uh, entirely free. It comes completely from the left field for both of them. They have, they're not looking for this. They don't have any sense of themselves as having a sexual identity in that, in that way. Uh, they come from different classes, as I've said. Uh, and B, when it does happen, um, they, what they meet is incredulity, their own intents at first, and then the incredulity of the town in which they live. Uh, so that's partly why I set it in the 1950s. And I, I also, I began with the question, what would, ha what, would the, what would the mother fear most if this happened to her, if she had a child? And I thought, well, the thing she would fear most then would be losing her child. Uh, and which is, and I, for a long time I thought I'd write a court scene. I thought it was all going to end with a big court scene, which it doesn't, at which custody was awarded to her father because she would, was, would have been deemed an unfit mother. Um, that doesn't happen. And I did lots of research to ensure, to check that that would have been what had happened. And it would, that is certainly what would have happened if it, if it had come to that. Uh, but I wanted to have that kind of tension in, in, in the relationship or in the situation for the, for the mother. Um, so that's why I set it back. I can't believe I've forgotten your question now. I think that answered it. Okay, uh, that's yeah. fine. Yeah, <laughs> the, uh, the, the small oppressive village that my characters emerge into is the global media village, yes. you know, in that they're instantly under pressure to offer up their experience to the media in some, you know, comfortably packaged form. And in a way, I'm very mean about the media in this novel because I think to people who. <laughs> who've emerged from being kidnapped and, you know, the media attention can only be traumatic. You know, media treat them as if they should be these saints on pedestals and then they're very quick to criticize decisions that these young women make um, under conditions of appalling captivity. So um, I, I took everything I knew about intrusive or crass media <laughs> commentary and I put it into one scene in the book in which Ma is being interviewed by a, a television hostess. Um, I think because I really wanted I wanted, you know, Jack to look forward to this real authentic world on the outside, but of course there are many aspects of our world out here that aren't real and authentic at all. And if you're in this little bubble of celebrity, it can make it particularly unreal. So I really enjoyed, in a way, having, you know, the forces of American television act as the equivalent of the gossiping neighbors, you know, the needling, the criticizing, like Ma in my book gets criticized for still breastfeeding Jack, for instance, you know, that's one of the things that fingers start to wave about, you know. Well, her mother, finds that a bit strange that Ma's still breastfeeding and also her father finds the whole concept of Jack quite difficult to deal with. So it's I not just to, the media. There's show, a yeah, that's right. I wanted to show the range in how a family might react when their daughter comes back to them after seven years of being missing, presumed dead. And I thought, you know, one of those very valid responses is for a father to be glad to have his daughter back, but to be absolutely appalled that there's this child of rape, this strange little pale long-haired boy that he's never met before which which to her father would always be a living reminder of my daughter was raped over and over again so i don't think you can shy away from the the psychological discomfort here um, and that's something else the media try and do you know photos of the happy family's reunion i mean the sentimentalizing of every kind of family relationship it's just disgusting I, li I, li I love the breastfeeding detail because it felt completely, no it felt so normal to me that it seemed to I can remember having an argument with my mother-in-law about precisely that quite the breastfeeding question. So it seemed, so it seemed a very normalizing, actually, um, in one way, very normalizing oh, yeah, point of dispute between and mother and daughter. together, you know, whatever passes the time. You know? <laughs> <coughs> a friend of mine breastfeeds her daughter at five because she said it's great, keeps her out of the way while I'm emailing. <laughs> <laughs> Now, does anyone have any questions from the audience? I have loads more, but just... Um, I'm sure they do. Yes, they must do. Really? Not a single question from the audience? Ah, there's one. Wait, wait, wait for the microphone. Sorry. Um, we, you mentioned boyness, and I'm just struck there's very few boys in the audience. Is, <laughs> is that relevant in any way, do you think? <laughs> Some boys. It may say something about who comes to literary festivals. Yes. I found that um, men read books, but women often want to socialize around the reading of books. So say creative writing courses, that kind of event often brings a female audience. But I think all the men are at home reading our books and taking notes <laughs> yeah. right now, right now. Actually, I've been I've been surprised in the in the response in the feedback and the responses to my novel, which is my novel's been out a bit long. My novel's been out a year, so it's had a bit of more time to kind of get feedback that surprising I've had some really passionate responses from men friends and several from men who've written to me saying they've very power one one man wrote to me recently an older man than much I think older much older than I am saying how powerfully identified with the doctor with the old with the woman 
and, he's, and he kept apologizing for writing to me as a man, and he also apologized for the fact that he was the other gender to the woman, and I, would, of course, don't have a problem with him sympathizing with my character. So actually, I've had a rather interesting, uh, much more, many more male responses to this novel than I have to previous novels, curiously, although it's a much more explicitly female, uh, or at least two of the three characters are so clearly kind of are, are women, and it's, and it's a love story. My story is a romance, which isn't traditionally where, where men go for their reading, so doesn't really answer your question, but... Well, I suppose to expand on that, I've been, both of you, I noticed when I was doing a little bit of research, are described as lesbian writers, and I, I wondered how you felt about that, um, we that label. We were just joking in the green room that um, it's a newer label to Fiona, and it's one that this particular book of mine has no lesbian content, so I feel like I'm <laughs> lifting this very heavy badge off me and handing it to Fiona and saying, you deal with it. <laughs> no, I don't... I don't renounce the label at all. No, uh, some of my books have lesbians in them and some don't, and I really try not to worry about the labeling factor. I figure it would be bad manners to reject the label. You know, if I went around saying, don't call me an Irish writer, it would seem as if I was ashamed of being Irish. So I feel the same thing about a lesbian writer or, you know, unusually tall writer. There's no, <laughs> no Irish, no lesbians. There's no, there's none of that. None it just so happens. No, no Canadians. No Canadians, no. <laughs> I did. I did. Um, I did get the, the lesbian question for the first time at a at a reading a, a event I did about Tell It to the Bees um, in Blackpool, and I got somebody said to me, "So has your next book got a lesbian in it?" And I thought, "Oh," and I said, "Actually, no." And she said, "Don't you?" Th the question along the lines of, "Don't you think there ought to be a lesbian in it?" And I said, "Well, no. That the story doesn't work like that." I said, "There is a gay man. Does that count?" But. You know, <laughs> Did it, was she happy with that? No, she no, wasn't no. happy with that. But <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? Yes, there's a lady right at the back. Hi. Um, I've read Room. I'm sorry, I haven't read uh, Fiona's book, but I will certainly do so. I was wondering, I felt so affected by Jack's story and came to care for him so much. If you're desperate for him to escape and then it's so powerful the writing about when he's actually free and you want the world to be perfect and of course it isn't. I thought that was really affecting. But I wondered how do you decide where to leave him? I was so desperate to know what would happen to him and also Fiona you were saying you decided a different way to end your book. I just wonder as writers how you decide where to leave it with a character. Um, I don't want to talk about the last scene of the book, but I was very, I had that last scene in mind from before I even wrote it. It was very clear to me that I just needed to get Ma and Jack to a point where they could get on with their lives. And I was not going to say how their lives develop because the funny thing is they will end up rather ordinary, you know. They'll become more like an ordinary young mother and an ordinary boy. They'll have other things in their lives. They'll be, you know, spread over many roles, whereas in Room they have this weirdly concentrated existence. So all I can wish for them and hope for them is the blessing of um, ordinariness, really. <laughs> um, my, my, book, my book, actually, my, the ending has been quite controversial in, in, amongst my readership, it seems, that my book ends, again, I don't want to give away the ending, uh, but there's a, there's a frame around my book, about, around the main story, which uh, is set about 20 years after the, the main story. Uh, so the book has a very short piece at the beginning, which is 20 years later, and it involves Charlie and his father, um, and, it, and it concludes at the end. And some people have really liked that, some people have really not liked it, some people have wanted much more, and they wanted me to write another kind of novel on the back of that novel. So I find endings, I'm kind of, um, I have an ending for my next novel, the one I'm writing, but I didn't, I wasn't sure how to end this one, and uh, wrote a kind of, I don't know, a kind of, um, an ending full of suggestion, I think, but um, so then some, for some people that's worked and for some people they felt irritated by it. I often have readers coming up to me and saying, why didn't you tell us more at the end of that mm. novel? You know, and they, they say this of several of my novels, but I don't think it's good for them. Good. I'm sorry, <laughs> I know it's a bit frustrating, but it's, it's up to readers to make that imaginative leap themselves, you know? So you've got to stop writing at some point. You have to end, so. I think yeah. you both end in a rather hopeful way. I, I must admit, I didn't feel frustrated. I felt that you finished oh, them perfectly, <laughs> but I, I, you know, you feel rather sort of happy after this trauma that you've, you know, you've been through in both books, that there's something <laughs> quite well, Whenever you're writing about trauma, you're on that knife edge, you know, one minute you want feelings of dread and horror in your readers, and one minute you want to give them a bit of a breath, you know, so it's a constant juggle, you know. I sort of tinkered with every paragraph in the book, do I have the balance right, you know, because you want that feeling of uplift to be hard-earned, you don't want to be handing it out too easily. Mm -hmm.
Any more questions? Yes, there's a man. <laughs> Spotted. <laughs> Sorry, I, I wasn't going to apologize for being a, a, a man there. But, um, uh, I wanted to ask, you've both uh, written about um, uh, childhood, but you've both written adult fiction, literary adult fiction, so it, it's nothing, uh, um, it's not children's interest novels. Um, I, I just wanted to ask how you uh, avoided the, the pitfalls of cutesiness or sentimentality of, uh, of writing about the inner lives of, uh, of, of children. You that. I'm because I don't think children are cutesy or sentimental. There are cutesy, sentimental Hollywood movies made about them, but I think if you follow the actual mental workings of, say, a five-year-old, they are they are rigorous. They will ask questions about, you know, the dead uncle and exactly what he's doing in heaven and is he with the dead cat. I mean, they will <laughs> they will face uncomfortable subjects and they'll not talk about them again for a day or two, and then they will come back to the dead uncle. Is he still dead? Can I have his boat? You know, where's the cat? Why can't I have another cat? You know, they, they pursue matters, but they really don't, you know, suck on the emotion like a lollipop. You know, they're, they're terribly good at feeling something and moving on. So um, I think if you really rigorously follow the child's point of view, um, cutesy is the last place you're going to end up. I think that's a very good answer. <laughs> <laughs> Any more questions? Is there one? Hi, uh, this is for Emma. Um, I'm from Dublin, and as you've probably gathered already, uh, you and yourself and Paul Murray have been classed as the, the Irish hopefuls for the Booker Prize, so you're going to have to wrap the green flag around yourself pretty soon. How do you feel about, uh, do you get in, hooked on that Booker hoopla, or do you just kind of uh, let it slide and hope for the best? It's all been a, thri a thrilling novelty to me. Um, and I can say that Paul Murray's Skippy Dies, I just finished reading all 650 pages of it. It's absolutely hilarious. It's quite brilliant. So um, I'm honored to be on the same list as him, quite apart from all those foreigners. <laughs> well, um, you have famously said that uh, the, the inspiration for your book came from hearing something about the Fritzl case. And, um, and you have written non-fiction before, and I wondered why you both have decided when to write fiction or when to write non-fiction, and, and why, you have, you know, why you explored the Fritzl situation particularly through, through this, or how that actually manifested itself. Um, in this case, it was very easy, because the Fritzl case just gave me that little nugget of an idea of a five-year-old stepping into a world he didn't know before. Um, when I've written historical fiction, I quite often base it very closely on real events, and that is such hard work, I don't know why I do it. I should just make up a good story, but somehow I get this kind of detective interest in trying to figure out what was really going on. For instance, my last novel is about a Victorian divorce case, and I was there stewing over every detail of the records, going, that servant is lying. She couldn't have written that letter if it was a Tuesday. You know, so it, it's a wholly separate thrill. And somehow readers are very interested in fiction that has a nugget of fact in it. It's as if they want it both ways, you know? They want to feel it, it's true in some factual sense and that it's true in some emotional sense. It's a bit of a puzzle why in our time we're so interested in, in these, these mixtures of, of fiction and reality, but I do find them very appealing myself. Mm -hmm. But I've never done memoir. No, my, first book was, my first book was a memoir, which is what we were referring to called Out of Me, which one person, one person did actually come up to me afterwards and say, why didn't you write this as a novel? And, and I, was, I was kind of a bit incredulous. The, 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 story, the, the, the book came out of the experience of having a, of a, a nervous breakdown, having a very severe postnatal breakdown. And, and I thought, well, why would I fictionalize something which I know so powerfully from the inside? Uh, why would I kind of go to that effort? In a sense, why would I do that work when actually the, power, the strength of this is that it actually did happen? And, and this is... Uh, it, so, I, so the book is part, in part a telling of what happened, trying to get up very close to uh, the memory of being that depressed, actually, which was, was very difficult. It was very troubling because I was still in many ways quite close to the experience. And then trying to explore why I thought it had happened, which 
came closer to what Emma's just been talking about, about research, researching things. So I went away and read masses of psychiatry and interviewed psychiatrists and interviewed all kinds of people to try and figure out why it was that, why it was it that had happened to me and why it was that I'd been treated, why I'd received the treatment I had. Uh, but as to writing it as fiction, it didn't occur to me, though having written and published it, and it's, I mean, I'm, it was, having written and published it and been involved in that publicity machine, I swore that I would never write another memoir again, and will, as far as I'm concerned, never write another memoir again. Though I'm very, very glad that I, that, that I wrote and published that one. Um, so. I think the psychology of becoming a parent is, is endlessly fascinating, what it does to you. I mean, I had no depression, but I would still say that becoming a mother broke me like an egg, you know? I mean, there's, there's a fundamental change, you know? That, that first time you're asleep and you hear the voice in the middle of the night and you think, I have to get up now. I just have to, you know? I think you might be alarming our chair. <laughs> Somebody needs to tell her. It's a bit late now. <laughs> Are there any other questions? Oh, there must be questions. There we go. There's a lady at the front. Would you just wait for the microphone? <coughs> no, it just came out of what you said about the publicity machine. Is it very awful? Um, the experience. Very awful. <laughs> I think. I think. Um, as we were, I was talking with somebody about today. I think it's the ways in which it blindsides you that can be off. I mean. The, there's partly just people endlessly, this was when my book came out, it was before email, so I didn't have to deal with people piling in emails, um, but it was the answering machine that I had to deal with. And it was only, f it's only for a very condensed period where people, you think, gosh, everyone thinks I'm very interesting, and then they will stop, and you think, I've stopped being very interesting. And that's quite strange. Um, but the, but the, things that were, the things that I found very exposing about this book, it was a memoir, not a novel, so I couldn't turn around and say to people, this is fiction. Um, and people, you, you can never anticipate the ways in which the things that people will either take offence at or disagree with you about. You can work really hard with your publisher and your agent to think up all the ways in which people might object to this, both family, family members and how you, how in my case I dealt with that before it was published, and people who then read it. But you, you just can't, you actually can't guess. The, your reading public are much more imaginative and have much very different kind of emotional responses from the ones you can imagine they'll have. And so it was that what I found hardest about the publicity machine were not the, the positive reviews were great, but the, somebody, I had one review, and it was only one where the woman was almost saying, I wouldn't like to meet this woman in an alley at the dead of night. And I was, and I was, and it really hit in. And despite all the positive stuff that was coming, that negative account and was very hard, I found very hard to deal with. And, um, and it was, a, and I think it was harder because it was a memoir. So that kind of thing, I thought, well, I don't ever want to put myself, I have no reason to put myself in the way of that kind of publicity again. And so now, publicity machines, you can say, well, it's fine, it's fiction. They don't like the story, it's a story. Um, doesn't feel as personal. And let's so be honest, for a writer, getting no publicity is pretty awful as well. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've all had those publication days yes. where nothing happens. Nobody rings, nobody reviews yeah. it, it's just a blank. So. Um, you know, probably the ideal is something in between the two. <laughs> and do you, do you read your reviews? Do you read all your publicity? Or I don't believe any writer who says they don't read their reviews. They just sometimes <laughs> get a friend or a loved one to filter it for them. But yeah, I think everybody reads their reviews. I I'm a publicist in my day job, and uh, uh, there are writers who don't want to ever have it posted to them, no mention of it. And you say, just Good to let bad. you know, the Times covered it. And you, that's as much Even as they'll. Even if it's positive? Yeah, they don't want to know. Oh, my God. Well, they're very brave and stalwart <laughs> and determined. Not many of them, but that's, it, it does happen sometimes. They must have to brief all their friends and their family and everybody. Oh, I'm sure everybody just goes, oh, I read that wonderful review in the Times. But, um, <laughs> Actually, the only thing I find hurtful in reviews is if they imply that you had some grubby motive for writing the book, you know, quite apart from your wish to write a book, you know, if they either imply that just because you sold a book well means that you wrote it for money, that's sore. Or I remember back in 1995, somebody reviewed um, one of my novels saying, Donahue has leapt on the bandwagon of lesbian chic for the second time. And they're all thinking, looking at my sales figures and thinking, what bandwagon? Where's the bandwagon? So if you leapt on it the first time, you can't leap again. Fling <laughs> on to the side. <laughs> one more question. Last chance, lady at the front. Tell us a wee bit about the other books you've written. Just a wee bit. Um, I've written, well, I've written uh, the memoir and this novel, and I've written two earlier novels which are come within the kind of category or the definition, I suppose, of historical novels. One set in the 1860s or so in New York, 
and uh, has to do with Quakers and chocolate making, of course, and Fisher girls and that kind of thing. And it's about the kind of rise in industrialization, and it's actually partly about kind of commerce and the rise in advertising and that kind of that, that, that's the territory. And the second one is set in the 1920s, and it's um, very much rises out of reading about the black and tans and the Irish troubles in part, and in part it's about a young woman who's had the light time of her life in the First World War. She was a nurse, and actually it was a time when she really meant when she felt that she signified. And she comes out of that war back into her life, and everything kind of falls apart for her. And so it's, that's, that's the territory of the second one. Um, I've got two main flavors. <laughs> I do um, contemporary novels, which are often quite based on my own experience. I've got some set in Ireland in the 1990s, one that's set half in Canada, half now, which is more satirizing Irish Ireland since the boom. And then I've got historical novels, which tend to be much meatier and darker. They're more about, you know, coping with life in the gutter or, or um, in the rich ballroom, but either way in a more merciless kind of society. And room is not like any of these at all. Well, um, you all know that I think both novels are absolutely outstanding, and I believe that everybody in this room should go and read both of them. Um, they are both hugely enjoyable, laugh out loud funny occasionally, bawling your eyes out, emotional. And, um, but I'm not the only person who thinks they're brilliant, and so I have a couple of quotes. Um, Audrey Niffenegger, I think that's how you pronounce her name, <laughs> uh, said that Emma Donoghue's writing is superb alchemy, changing innocence into horror and horror into tenderness. Room is a book to read in one sitting, and when it's over, you look up. The world looks the same, but you are somehow different, and that feeling lingers for days. That's exactly as I felt about this book. And Andrew Davis, I agreed with him on uh, Tell It to the Bees. It gripped me like a vice and I stopped doing anything else to get to the end. Uh, absolutely, but they're both books are covered with uh, praise and reviews by lots of other eminent people who think they're brilliant. So please follow us to the bookshop and, uh, and come and buy them. Anyway, it leaves me to say thank you so much, both of you, for coming here and talking about your books, Emma Donoghue and Fiona Shaw. Many more Edinburgh International Book Festival event recordings are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk along with a selection of videos.